it's a little odd to be uh, a little late when you're the one teaching. That's great. Uh, I'm glad to be together this morning, um, working through a technical difficulty upstairs, so thank you for your grace. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church of Greeley. Um, glad to be back with all of you. If, um, you. if For some of you, many of you know we have been uh, gone vacationing, I don't know what the right trip, I don't know what the right word is. People ask me how it goes, and I'm not sure that I always know. Um, we, we were gone the last couple uh, Sundays, um, got the blessing of going to somewhere where it's 86 degrees and 80% humidity. Oh, yeah, you know. Um, and then, you know, perfect timing to come back um, at this juncture to, to meet the coldest weather of winter. So hoorah uh, for us. So that's, that's great. Really glad, really grateful to be back. Just, a, just a, one quick thing I wanted to share. Um, I don't know how to express the thankfulness that I have of this church and specifically the leadership in this church uh, to let a guy like me um, go and do what I did in the month of December um, without their help. And so I'm so grateful for um, all of you all that um, ran the ship by God's grace so well. So praise God for that. You, church, should know um, that you have a leadership team that loves you and cares for you deeply. Um, and we should just celebrate that. So um, Pastor Josh, Pastor Pat, uh, Dustin, and many other names that I could articulate. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Appreciate you in the trench with us. It's 2024. That happened. 2024, and we are continuing um, our journey through the Gospel of John as we've walked verse by verse through that book. Uh, the sermon series that we've entitled, Behold the Christ. And we believe that John, as the author of this book, wants us as its readers, as its recipients, to see the person of Jesus as the Messiah. Behold the Christ. Don't miss him. Because he's not just a man. He's the son of God that has come, that put on flesh, that walked unto the cross, was hung upon a cross who died, who was pierced for our transgressions, who took upon the weight of sin, our sin, against God. And as Dustin talked about last week, was pierced for our transgressions where he died and then he was placed in the tomb. This morning, we are in John chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. That is where we will be this morning. And as you get there, I want to set the stage for our time this morning. The sermon title is Jesus' Resurrection, the Dawning of God's Kingdom. I've made a, a typo up there. So the unexpected kingdom, that's okay. We'll get to that in a second. It's the dawning of God's kingdom. And if you are familiar with the gospel account, specifically the life of Jesus, then you probably know about the death of Jesus. And if you know about the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, then you probably know about the resurrection. You probably know about that. And praise God if you know the gospel account and if you believe it. Praise God. My prayer today is that regardless if you are familiar or if you are unfamiliar, that we would sit in wonder at what God has done in the face of Jesus in this resurrection event. So 
Jesus' resurrection, the dawning of a kingdom. And I want to um, make three large points this morning. First is that the resurrection of Jesus, although familiar to us, it is completely unexpected. And it has unexpected beginnings. An unexpected beginning. Although God eternally knew and had eternal plan, his kingdom, the resurrection of Jesus, was completely unexpected and out of this world. The second point I want to make this morning is that Jesus' resurrection that results in God's kingdom has unexpected followers. The tactics that God uses to expand his kingdom is not of this world. And third and final is that Jesus' resurrection resulting in the dawning of God's kingdom has an unexpected invitation. An unexpected invitation. So unexpected beginnings, unexpected followers, and an unexpected invitation. So let's turn our attention to the text. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 20. I'm going to invite you to stand as we read the word of our God. Follow along with me in John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out, with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as they had yet, excuse me, for as they yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she went, as she wept, she stooped in to look in the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to him, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. 
on November 14th, 1948, Charles Philip Arthur George, what a name, was born in Buckingham Palace to Elizabeth Alexander Mary, better known to us as Queen Elizabeth II. Charles became the heir apparent to the throne of England when his mother, Elizabeth, ascended to the British, British throne in 1952. That means he's four years old when he becomes the heir apparent. Queen Elizabeth died in September of 2022 at the age of 96, where her son, Charles, at the age of 73, became the new king of England where the famous words were spoken, the queen is dead, long live the king. For Charles, he waited 70 years before his coronation, where both the way that he would become king and when he would become king were fully expectant and highly anticipated. Everybody knew how that was going to happen and what was needed to make it happen. Not so with the coronation of Jesus as our king and his kingdom. For us that are familiar with the account of Jesus' life and death, the resurrection might not be put into the category of unexpected, but let me have us consider it absolutely was. Let us consider these verses um, from the first century perspective as a follower of Jesus, as a first century Jew. For they mourned Jesus, not only because of the brutal treatment of Jesus, the unfair and unjust trial against Jesus, or the agony that he experienced on the Roman cross like we do, like we did over the last couple weeks as we look at that event. But they also mourned Jesus because they believed that Jesus died and was gone never to return to earth. Look with me in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, they've taken away my Lord, our Lord, out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. All four Gospels, every single one of them, records the resurrection event. And if you grew up in the church or have been a part of the church or read your Bible and know the gospel account, we know, praise God, that Jesus' horrific death was not the end. That we, he would, uh, three days later, conquer the grave and he would rise in victory. We know that. Praise the Lord. However, if we are not careful, we can miss the astonishing miraculous, and even otherworldly event that is going to take place here in these verses if we are not careful. Notice from the text what is expected. Mary, as well as another, this other group of faithful, like servant-hearted women, they rise early and they go to the tomb. Why? Why do they go to the tomb? What do they expect to find? Jesus was crucified on Friday midday and in a hurry, an attempt to obey the law of Moses, he was removed in a big hurry. 
to try to get him off the cross and get him into the tomb before the Sabbath started, which would have been dusk Friday evening. He's taken down from the Roman cross, he's wrapped in linen clothes, and he's laid in the tomb, and apparently not all the elements that they desired to do for the burial process were able to be completed prior to the Sabbath starting. And so these women, desiring to honor and love the Lord Jesus, came to the tomb expectant to complete the burial process on behalf of Jesus' body. That's what they expected. That is why we see the reaction in the text that we see. They draw near, they see the stone removed, and quickly they conclude that someone has taken the body of their Lord Jesus, and so they go and they alert the disciples. Look with me carefully. Throughout this text, three different times, verse 2, verse 13, and verse 16, Mary communicates that she's looking for the body of Jesus. That's what she's expecting to find not the resurrected Christ. That idea is not even possible to her. It's not in her thinking. There's no place at this time for Mary for that to be a possibility. Why is that? Why not? Like, didn't didn't Jesus say that he had to die? Like, didn't Jesus teach them that he was going to rise again one day, that his death was not the end, but that one day he would return? Now, before we are too harsh with Mary the, and the other women here, let us consider just how unexpected this event truly is. For these things don't happen. People do not just get up and walk out, leaving the tomb empty. Or do they? Well, yes, it happened with Lazarus, right? In John chapter 11, we remember that account. But even there, we learn something highly important to understanding the worldview that the first century Jewish people and the followers of Jesus had. Do you remember this scene? Jesus comes. After Lazarus has been dead for four days, maybe longer, we don't really know. And what does he say to Martha, Lazarus' sister? He says, your brother will rise again. And what does Martha say to him? Yeah, I know. That's what she says. Yeah, I know. I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day, Jesus. I know that. Now, don't miss that, church. It's not that, that there isn't an understanding for the resurrection in the worldview of these people at this time. Mary and these other women and these followers of Jesus believed in the resurrection. They believed that it would happen. But like many, many, many of Jesus' teachings at the time, when Jesus taught them, they heard and they understood only in part. So when Jesus taught that he would die and rise again, more than likely... The understanding of Jesus' resurrection was thought of in the exact same way. Well, yeah. Jesus is going to rise again. So will we. Someday. That day. But not this day. 
not the here and now and not in this physical world. And, and even so, if that actually happens with, like, with Lazarus, like Lazarus was brought to life by whom? Jesus. Like Jesus got that done. The, the, uh, the physical uh, man, the son of man, the son of God, like the alive Jesus helped cause Lazarus to do that. Who could possibly help the deceased Jesus now? If he's gone, like what hope do we have? Church, family, like let not our familiarity with the resurrection of Jesus desensitize us from the unexpected beginning and therefore the miraculous and amazing power that is on display here. For these things are not of this world. So, what actually happened? What unexpected event takes place? Verse 3 so the disciples run to the tomb. This artist, Bernand, painted in the late 19th century, painted it this way. These two guys, look at their faces. They run to the tomb. For some reason or another, John the author beats Peter and he wants everybody to know that. That's why he wrote it in here. Peter, not to be outdone, right? John gets there, the text says, and then he stops and he stoops in, he looks, but he doesn't go in. And Peter, good old Peter, not to be outdone, does what? Oh, I'll get there second, but I'll go in. And he goes in. And what do they see? What do they see? Verse six. The linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head it's not lying with the other cloths, but it's folded up in a place by itself. This is truly unexpected. Why? Because if you're going to rob a grave and take a body, which apparently was a popular problem at the time, so popular if you read history, they, they deemed it punishable by death a couple centuries later. Okay, so if you're going to take the body, who unwraps the body from its expensive cloth and leaves it behind? Who does that? If, if you're going to steal the body, who removes the head cloth and folds it up neatly and places it in the spot where the body was lying? Who, if you're going to steal the body, like doesn't put back the stone, right, to conceal the crime? not to mention taking on the soldiers that are standing guard, which aren't talked about in this account, but are in other gospel accounts. See, this is the unexpected beginning, right? The dawning of God's kingdom, verse eight, for they saw these things, and I would guess, like remembering some of the teachings of Jesus, and the only logical conclusion that they could explain this evidence before them was Jesus has risen, Like they believed that Jesus had risen, that Jesus had overcome death, that the tomb was empty, not because of some ruse, 
but because Jesus got up and stepped out of the grave. Verse 9 tells us that they did not yet fully understand the scriptures, that Jesus must die and rise from the dead, but that doesn't mean that they did not believe that he did rise. Do you see the distinction? They just didn't understand that it was expected. Verse 8 tells us that they did believe, and in believing, they returned home, believing in this unexpected miracle, the unexpected beginning. Like, who would have thought that through the death of Jesus would come the birth of his kingdom, the coronation of his kingship? Like, those things are not of this world and are completely unexpected. Point number two for our time this morning. Jesus' resurrection was unexpected and it gathered unexpected followers. Look at verse 11 with me. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Now, we don't know because the text doesn't say, but it makes some logical sense that uh, Peter and John, they run to the tomb and they beat Mary to the tomb. They have an experience at the tomb while Mary's coming back to the tomb and I'm gonna guess they don't cross paths. Because that's messed up for Peter and John not to clue Mary in to what they believe. So I'm going to conclude, the text doesn't say, but I'm going to assume that Peter and John, they go their way and for some reason they miss Mary as Mary's coming back to the tomb. Okay, And so Mary is now back at the tomb and she's still broken. She's still broken in anguish over the reality of Jesus' death, and she's broken over the thought that someone has taken uh, the body of her Lord, and sometime in between the tears, she decides to step into the tomb to see more, and what does she find? Verse 12. Two angels, clothed in white, sitting at the place where Jesus lay. Verse 13, and they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? Like the angels know. Like this is not a time for mournful tears. And so they they gently rebuke Mary. Mary, understandably so, not understanding yet, she restates why she's crying. And at that moment, the text tells us the resurrected Jesus walks up behind her. Now it's interesting to me that Mary doesn't recognize him. Verse 15, she supposes that he's the gardener, possibly there to care for the area that the tomb is located in. And John, oh the irony. Like John, consistent in his form of irony, it's on full display because Mary could not have been more right. For standing before her was indeed the true and better gardener. Who who better to meet on the first day of the week, the first day of new creation, than Jesus? The one that would bring back his people to Eden. Do you see that? But Mary doesn't know just yet. 
There are several possibilities to explain this. It's possible that in her broken, understandably like emotional state, it's like keeping her from fully comprehending this unexpected turn of events. Like that's possible. It's possible that the identity of Jesus is like somehow hidden from her. Like when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with some followers. That's possible. It's also possible that Mary is simply standing in a dark tomb. And the guy that just came up is standing in the doorway. The sunlit silhouette of a figure you do not recognize. That's possible. It's possible, because it's even kind of hinted at here in verse 16. Look at it with me. That she does not indeed turn, she does indeed turn to look at the individual approaching, but then somewhere there, like, turns her attention back to the angels. And she's conversing with this individual without giving her his full attention. That's a possibility. We don't know. What we do see is this gentle, like, loving posture of Jesus drawing near to Mary with these words like whom are you seeking notice not like what are you seeking like a body but whom are you seeking of all the individuals to draw to the resurrected Christ of all the individuals to reveal the resurrected Christ to first, of all the individuals to commission to proclaim Jesus' resurrection to all of his other followers, verse 17, which we'll look at here in a second, who does he choose? Jesus' resurrection, the dawning of God's kingdom, it begins with these unexpected followers. See, God in his eternal wisdom continues to use the foolishness of this world to shame the wisdom of this world so that no one might boast before him. During this period of time, the eyewitness testimony of women, it didn't matter how many, didn't hold any credibility whatsoever. And not only did Jesus choose these couple of women to first reveal himself, but John chooses to single out specific women, and specifically in this text, a lady by the name of Mary Magdalene. Now we can learn more about Mary in the other gospel accounts, and if you go explore that, here's a snapshot of what you're going to find. She is demon-possessed where she's tormented physically, emotionally, psychologically, by as many as seven different evil spirits. You can find that in Luke chapter 8. Where she is undoubtedly ostracized, estranged, and kicked to the curb of society. And who, of all people, finds her? Who draws near to her in her plight? None other than Jesus himself, her Lord and her Savior, who saved her from the shadow of death, and he called her to himself. 
We don't really know like how that all happened. Scripture doesn't say. Angel Studios depicts Mary's transformation in the popular TV series called The Chosen this way. As a demon-possessed woman who's called Lilith. The word Lilith comes from the Jewish folklore at the time and it's often used to mean demon. And that is how she's known in her society. In episode two of season one, Lilith in the pains of suffering and on the edge of ending her own life is met by a man named Jesus. And without any introduction, what does Jesus call her? Mary. Mary. Not Lilith, but by her own name, Mary. Now, we don't know if that's accurate or not. Like, if Jesus called her out of darkness and to himself that way, like, the chosen is probably taking some creative license, expressing the events of Mary's life. Yes and amen. Yes, that's true. But what we do know is that is exactly how Jesus reveals himself to her here. Do you see that? Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Like, gone is her confusion. Gone is her grief, for she has heard the voice of her shepherd, who's called her by name, and whose voice she knows. Like, do we, do we hear the echoing of John chapter 10? I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Church family, that's a picture of the gospel. For all of us here this morning who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, who believe in his life, his death, and his glorious resurrection, who accomplished all the necessary means to redeem us, forgive us, and make us holy and blameless before him. If I'm speaking of you this morning, this is only true of you because in the same way Jesus has called you and I by name. where we too, like Mary, are unexpected followers of our king. Of a savior whose kingdom has dawned and he is ruling and he's reigning and his dominion is expanding one unexpected follower at a time. Where we, quite frankly, like should not be followers. Like who creates a kingdom of these kinds of subjects? Like who creates a following out of rebels? Who does that? Who adopts lawless and disobedient people and he calls them his own? Who does that? Only King Jesus does that. 
Like through his resurrected life and the dawning of God's kingdom, through the personal and intimate calling, does the resurrected Jesus call his sheep to himself? If you believe and you profess belief and trust and believe in Jesus, you and I, we are the unexpected followers in a kingdom of unexpected beginnings. Point number three, and last this morning. Not only is Jesus' resurrection the dawning of God's kingdom, it has an unexpected beginning, it also has unexpected followers, but here it is, it also has an unexpected invitation. An unexpected invitation. Look with me in verse 17. Jesus is talking to Mary. And he says, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God, church family. In the gospel, get this, this is crazy. This is crazy. In the gospel, John records Jesus referring to God as Father 180 times. 180 27 times, Jesus uses the phrase, my father. 71 times, Jesus says, the father. But only once in the entire gospel of John does Jesus refer to God as the disciples' father, your father. And he does it right here in verse 17. One time. This is the unexpected invitation that Jesus' resurrection secures for his followers. First, because it's an invitation given not based on my worth or your worth or your efforts or my efforts or our social status or the amount of influence that you or I carry, or how helpful you and I are going to be at expanding the kingdom. None of that is why you get invited in. For God's kingdom is not like this world. Instead, his invitation is secured by the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He is the one that invites us in. Second, This unexpected invitation grants us the promise of acceptance. You look at this text and what he's saying to Mary, it seems a little harsh or odd maybe originally. It's like, hey, keep your distance, you know. Here's what I think Jesus is actually saying to Mary. He's telling her, you can't keep me, Mary. I I know I'm back but you can't keep me here. I have to go unto my daddy. He must ascend and go unto his father and because he goes, get this, because he goes unto the father where he's fully accepted, we can be assured that his acceptance is now our acceptance. That his father is now your father. because of his perfect work purchasing for us all the riches in the heavenly places. 
where we can now, because of Jesus' sonship unto God, we're not only holy and blameless, praise the Lord, Ephesians chapter one, verses three and four, we are those things, but we're also now joined up with him in perfect union. This is the brotherhood that Jesus expresses here in verse 17. It's a, it's a brotherhood, it's a family tie that's deeper than all human blood. For we as the unexpected followers have received the unexpected invitation because of the shed blood of Jesus. The declaration of his work before God as complete which is only possible and is attested to because of the resurrection of the grave and the empty tomb. Jesus' resurrection, the dawning of God's kingdom, unexpected beginnings, full of unexpected followers, all receiving an unexpected invitation based on the worth of Jesus, resulting in his God and his Father being our God and our Father for all those who believe. The question we must continue to ask of ourselves is do you believe that? Do we believe in Jesus? Have you heard his voice call you by name? Like regardless of the good or bad circumstances that you are in this morning, regardless of the, like, the current high, high or the low valley of life, like, can you remember? Can you recall? Do you know, like in the depths of your soul, the voice of your shepherd who has called you by name? If you're here this morning and you can't honestly say yes to that. Yes, with all your heart and mind, know that Jesus' invitation to this unexpected, but it's oh so real, this unexpected invitation to wash you clean, remove your guilt and your shame, to be forgiven and set free, it's open to you this day because of the resurrection of Jesus. You must only accept it through believing and trusting in Jesus. If you are here this morning and you can say, yes, yes with all of your heart and mind, like I would, I have heard and I know the voice of Jesus who's called me by name. Like let us, let us dwell on that. The oh so good and needed anchor of our soul. That because of Jesus' resurrection, his acceptance, his provision, his mercy, his grace, his love, the abundant life, all of that is now ours because he has revealed himself to you by calling you by name. And may that, like, unexpected nature, may may the unexpected nature of those things, like, let it foster a heart of humility and worship for an awesome God 
who did some awesome work, work that is not of this world. Producing a people not of this world to proclaim him to and in this world that desperately needs him and let us dwell and let us meditate deeply right on on God's unexpected grace today, this week. Only possible because of Jesus' resurrection, the dawning of God's kingdom. May it go forth and glorify God's name. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. As the Lord God, I feel overwhelmed by what you have done. Not just what you have done for people, but Lord God, what you have done for me. Lord God, what you have done for individuals in this church and in northern Colorado and Colorado and and the U.S. and the globe and from time and space, Lord God, all that you have done because of the resurrection that you brought heaven down so that you might draw us into being a son and a daughter so that we can call you Father. God, we could mine the implications of that forever. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts towards worship of you in that. That we would think tomorrow and Tuesday and Thursday and Saturday, Lord God, what does it mean to think that you have called us by name and you are now our Father because of the resurrection? Thank you, O Lord God. May your name be hallowed and blessed for all of who you are and what you have done. We love you. It's only in the name of Jesus that we ever pray. Amen.